and they keep trying to invite just her in. Just the worst board games, too. Yeah, really just bad board games. Bad choice. <laughs> Nothing against Scrabble, but like <laughs> Kimber is right to say that. Yeah. Okay, the board yeah. game boom hadn't happened yet. <laughs> Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for coming on back for another episode of No Script. What if I did that whole episode in that sort of weird Captain Kirk impression I just did, where I just like <laughs> stop halfway through phrases and totally right. change the speed at which I speak? Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best grips. <laughs> That would make for a choppy listening experience. Yeah, it'd be an interesting acting exercise, though. So. <laughs> we're not actors, Jackson. We just sometimes act. We're, we just, yeah. we're script com- commentators. We, com- we talk uh, about we're, scripts. We're, we're thinkers. We're, we're talkers. I don't know. Right. right. We're it podcasters. Been... Look, we're two white there guys in our 20s with a podcast. Yeah, it's not sounds, that sounds, special. It's just what it sounds, is. <laughs> just sounds like kind of a day-to-day thing. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well. Here we go. T- today, we are talking about a new playwright to the podcast. Always exciting. A playwright that I'm sure we will come back to. Really incredible working playwright in the American theater right now. Lydia R. Diamond. Yes, Lydia Diamond, brand new uh, playwright to me as well. This is the first play I've read of hers. Um, excited to get into it. We're doing uh, Stick Fly, her play Stick Fly today. First play I've read of hers, and and yeah, it's going to be an exciting, exciting conversation, I'm sure. And I'll probably talk a little bit more about this when we come around to the context, but Stick Fly is sort of an unusual play for Diamond. She is a little bit experimental in form, uh, she tends to be a little bit less than conventional in the way she imagines time and space and characters and things like that in her theater. And Stickfly is a very, and she would say this too, a very sort of traditional, normal, uh, she calls it a well-made play. Just sort of a standard right. psychological dramedy, basically, which is unusual for her body of work. And the reason why we're doing this play is that this is the one that made it to Broadway just about 10 years ago, had tons of commercial success. It's probably the play of hers that you've heard of. Um, But I do want to just mention that it's sort of an abnormal piece for her. Yeah, a a, a diversion piece, a a piece that uh, leans into some some, uh, some, uh, kind of normalities of theater and plays with them a little bit. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. But before we jump into the 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 full discussion of it and the context for it, we do want to take just a second and thank all of our patrons over on patreon.com slash no script podcast for being a part of keeping this show going. For those of you who are longtime listeners, you know that we love doing this podcast. We love getting to talk to each other about plays and to be able to do it in a way that we get to include 
include a broader audience to talk with all of you out there in extension out there in in uh, podcast land. Uh, alas, this endeavor is not a free endeavor. There are some costs associated with hosting a podcast and uh, buying the scripts that we need to to run the show and, and also just the, the amount of time that we put into the show to keep it running. So if you are a no script podcast listener and are looking for a way to get involved in helping the show keep going, head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. You'll find a number of different tiers of patronship over there. The lowest one is just $1 and that $1, you know, $12 over the course of a year really helps out the podcast a ton. So if you're looking uh, for a way to, to help us out, to contribute to the broader community that is no script podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast, and we will see you over there. Thank you to all of our supporters. And now back to the script. Back to the script. All right. Lydia Diamond, first time with this playwright. So just a quick overview of her and who she is. Lydia Diamond, working playwright right now. She's sort of a champion of Chicago theater in the world of playwriting. Um, she started in the early part of her career, Chicago-based African-American theater company. She's had productions commissioned by the Goodman and Steppenwolf. She's taught playwriting at DePaul, at Columbia, at the University of Illinois, among other universities around the country. My understanding is that she lives on the East Coast actually now and, and moved out there and kind of had to restart her career on the East Coast. But when she was interviewed when Stickfly went on to Broadway, she was pretty quick to say that as a playwright who champions Chicago theater, getting to Broadway is not necessarily, I think she used the phrase, the light at the end of the tunnel for playwrights <laughs> who are aimed at that. So it's always refreshing to see and hear. Uh, I'm not somebody who is hugely into the New York theater scene, but I'm very much invested in what goes on in theater in Chicago. So that's exciting for me. Um, as I mentioned, she is sort of a less than conventional playwright in terms of form. So when she set out to write stick fly she was writing this traditionally structured well-made play um she's a resident playwright of chicago dramatists and and whether it was for that or a different project i couldn't quite tell but she was writing a different play at the time that stick fly came about and sort of famously it was this really heavy play that was taking a lot out of her and as a way to sort of balance that in her life she wanted to write something that was more light-hearted she uses the word frothy and something that <laughs> she thought would be easier to write, something that would just sort of come naturally. So she says, I'm just going to do this kind of well-made play. And, again, sort of famously, she discovers that it's very, very hard to write a well-made play, that she spent hours negotiating entrances and exits and who knows what information at exactly what time and when the revelations and reversals come about across the course of the plot. So the play is developed in a developmental production in 2006 in New Jersey in 2007. Then there's the world premiere productions, which was a dual... Um, it was pr the same production was done in two places, the Huntington Theater in Boston and the famous Arena Stage, of course, in D.C. That was 2010, directed by Kenny Leone, who's an incredible director. Um, he was the director of the 2014 Raisin in the Sun revival with Denzel, which won him a Tony.
Tony for Best Director. He was the director of The Mountaintop with Samuel L. Jackson. He directed the famous Fences production with uh, Denzel and Viola Davis. So a really, really incredible director. And he worked on that original world premiere, which was then transferred over to Broadway in 2011. It opened at the... Opened? Did my northern... impression there it opened at the uh, court theater in new york city Uh, interestingly it was presented by and all the advertisements that you can see for it from way back when include alicia key's name in big letters because it was presented by alicia keys which means that she was a producer and she also composed the original score for the piece In that Broadway production was a great actor, Ruben Santiago Hudson. He won a Tony Award in 96 for Seven Guitars. As with lots of Broadway plays that they're trying to do publicity for, there's some clips. And he, who plays the patriarch in the play, he is just incredible to watch. You should watch clips just to see him act that part. Really, really strong. So, um... It did the Broadway run in 2011 and 2012. It won the 2000 or it was nominated for the 2012 Outer Critics Circle Award for Outstanding New Broadway Play. Um, but, you know, in the life of the play, both before and after that, it has existed in regional theater the country over. And it, it's a really, really good play in that world and has had quite a few productions by notable regional theaters. So there's a deep Decent chance that if you're in an area with some substantial regional theater that you either already have seen this play or will see it in the next couple of years. Uh, It's a play that is somewhat about race and politics. And so we're in a time right now where awareness of race and politics and how they intersect is particularly heightened. And it's a little bit interesting to think about this play from that was, you know, written in 2006 on Broadway in 2011 how the commentary from 14 years ago, 10 years ago, cross applies to today's world. I don't know, but it's fascinating to think about. And that will probably have some influence on whether you'll see stick fly in a place near you. Yeah, it is interesting to kind of note the themes that have changed a little bit um, in, in that time. And then also, of course, the themes that continue to be an issue that still speak into the moment. And, and yeah, so that'd be a, that'd be a really interesting way to kind of approach the production of this play. Uh, re- real quick, I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of the play. It is a kind of a family play. It takes place uh, written uh, at the present when it was written, in, but its time is 2005. Um, it's set in Martha's Vineyard in Edgartown. Um, so the, this the kind of lavish retreat area on the East Coast. Um, and the, the, the events of the play are this family coming together for a vacation, for a getaway. I don't believe it's a seasonal getaway. It's just their, their family is retreating. Um, however, a lot of big things are happening. The family itself is made up of Kent, who is the younger son, uh, and Flip, who is the older son, and then their father, Joe, and their mother, who uh, ends up not appearing in the play at all, but is often talked about. So that is the family that lives at, at the house. And then both Flip and Kent bring their girlfriends and fiance to the house for this particular vacation. Kent brings Taylor, and uh, Joe, br- or I'm sorry, Flip brings Kimber. 
So uh, the family is all converging on on the house. And the other kind of notable thing that you find out pretty early on in the play is that Cheryl is uh, taking care of the house while they are there, which is a notable thing because her mother, Miss Ellie, uh, is is normally the person who takes care of the house. Um this is a uh, the other kind of notable thing. This is an a, an all all black family uh, that that own the that own the house and live here. Um, all the characters are black, with the exception of Kimber, who is Flip's uh, girlfriend, who he is bringing, and she is is white. Um, there's some joking back and forth about her being Italian, not white, um, but uh, there's there's some back and forth around that. Um, so all of this begins to converge, and and the over the course of the play, the couples arrive before their father and their mother do. Um, so Kent and Ta- Kent and Taylor and Flip and Kimber all arrive and begin talking with Cheryl and and uh, wondering where their dad is, and eventually their dad shows up um, without without their mom, who he says is just busy. She's 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 uh, coming coming later with the car, and. Uh, what what ensues is just uh, basically conversation of of this family coming together and sussing out of of history and secrets and 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 lies that are told around, uh, all all across the family. It becomes clear throughout the play that Flip and Taylor know each other almost immediately. We get the sense that they know each other from before, and it turns out that they had had a relationship three years ago. Not really a relationship, a, a one night stand, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago, and and this is the first time they've seen each other again. There is, of course, the uh, it, it comes out that Kimber's like uh, research and her 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 uh, work is in helping inner city kids in schools, and so there's a lot of conversation around uh, the kind of politics and socioeconomics of that dimension. Um, there's a continuing tension between Cheryl and Taylor, um, as Taylor, who's not really used to having Essentially, a maid working for the house tries to help in ways that are inappropriate to to help around the house. So all of this is kind of building and culminating these kind of uh, faux pas that are made and, and as as each other bounces up against each other. All the while, Cheryl is getting calls from her mother. Um, on the phone, who uh, is sick, uh, some sort of uh, I, I infer cancer. Yeah, I think that seems pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so she's like consistently calling her and kind of helping a little bit with with her to help take care of the house while these folks are here. But she's also encouraging her to talk to Joe, dad, um, the, the father of the family, about something. Ask him if he wants to tell you anything is kind of what uh, we get that she's asking. All of it through Cheryl, who's on the phone just responding. And... Um, Eventually, uh, it, it culminates. He doesn't. He doesn't reveal. Uh, Joe doesn't reveal uh, what what it is he wants to or doesn't want to talk about. And finally, on the phone, Cheryl learns that Joe is her father, which sets off a whole other series of conversations. As that secret is slowly sussed out, pulled out of of Joe, and eventually Cheryl can't hold it in any longer and kind of blows up with everyone there, accuses Joe of of all of this and he confirms it. And then the the, the end of the play is just kind of a slow 
denouement away from that moment of, of, of pain around this as everyone is still grappling with the reality of, of Joe's betrayal of the family in a, in a way and his betrayal of Cheryl in, in not telling her, we find out that he's known for four years and he's helped in the way that he thought was responsible by like getting her into schools and stuff, but retaining the secret. So there's a lot of betrayal, a lot of secret uh, pulling out. Just you know, it's like it's a family living room kitchen play, <laughs> where 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 everyone is has these secrets. We slowly learn about exposition. We see the differences in characters that come to heads with each other, and uh, and and you're always kind of wondering. You often are 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 finding out things before the characters and wondering what will happen when they find things out. That's the big kind of stretch of this play, as as the the different secrets, especially of Joe as Cheryl's father uh, gets gets pulled out of the characters. Yeah, dramatic irony is a huge part of the play as Diamond negotiates who's on stage at what time and what are they talking about that is a conversation that they can only have because other characters aren't on stage right now. And are any of those other characters on stage in sort of an unseen spot overhearing things? And do they come forward with the fact that they overheard it? Do they not? Uh, what do characters notice going on with each other and choose not to mention or choose to bring up? That's a huge part of this fairly complex and layered family dramedy. There is a ton going on. Uh, Jackson tried to cover as many of the bases as he could, but there are still <laughs> whole plot lines that he didn't mention, and we would go on for an hour right. trying to describe all the different pieces of plot because it's, you know, it's a six-character play, and the six characters are fairly evenly balanced in terms of what parts of the story they are gripping onto. There is so much story that each character gets their fair share of it to carry on with them. One more thing I didn't mention in the context, and I just want to mention because we like to do this, is that LATW uh, does have an audio recording of this play. We'd like to mention those because it's an easy, fairly accessible way for people to experience some version of plays when they have them on LATW. It's not the same, of course, but it's something. And so there's some there's a, a recording of this play you can buy on LATW with some pretty strong performances. So we recommend that you go check that out. Yeah, definitely. It's always fun to get the chance to to listen in on 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 a production, even if you can't be there in person and kind of hear the inflection, because I think the inflection is is so much of this play because it is a play that just is at like everyone is very combative <laughs> for a lot of the play. These are these are six people with strong personalities yeah. and no inclination to play the backseat role in any conversation. I mean it's <laughs> it's like six people who all want to be in the conversation deeply and invested mm -hmm. in what's going on and having their opinion, their take, their stakes brought into what's going on. And so you are right. The conversations <laughs> are intense and layered and really help by being performed. 
And they're all like fairly confident individuals until their breaking point. So, so all of these conversations while on the page, they seem like, oh, oh my, you all need to like calm down. Um, but on the, when you see it on stage, I, I had the, I, there were a number of YouTube clips from that original production that you were talking about uh, that, that Alicia Keys produced um, uh, that, that were really helpful for me to go and watch and kind of understand. It's always helped. I always, maybe it's just my Minnesotan, but like anytime there's like conflict on stage, <laughs> I'm like, oh my, they all hate each other. And then like when I go and watch <laughs> when I go and watch any production where a family is in conflict with each other, it's clear that there's there's love and and th this is a normal conversation for them. And certainly that's true of this play. This whole family is used to this kind of contention and and needing to stand toe to toe against each other often. So, Jackson, see if if I miss something, please tell me before we get too far into this. But as I recall, um, there are really four parent characters in the play that have some significant influence on what goes on in the events of the show. Of those four, three are offstage characters. Yeah. Uh, Joseph LeVay, the family patriarch, is an onstage character, incredibly written, awesome part, um, and has a lot to do with what goes on, if you remember from Jackson's synopsis, who he actually is the parent of and who he approves of, how he's taking care of the family, is a huge part of what goes on. But there are three other parent characters who significantly influence the plot and the characters' motivations and their stakes, and these three characters don't appear on stage at all. And those are Mrs. LeVay. Um, if her name is mentioned in the script, her first name is mentioned in the script, I've utterly forgotten it, and I apologize, but I don't think it is. They just call, the, I, yeah. the boys call her mom, and then the other two, the other three, uh, the girlfriends and the maid, call her, like, uh, Mrs. LeVay Mrs. or Levet, something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. So, there, that's Joseph LeVay's wife, the, the matriarch of this family, and her fa her family lineage-wise, is the one that has owned this house in Martha's Vineyard. She has a lot to do with what goes on. There is Mrs. Ellie, or Miss Ellie, who is the family maid, who is the one who's sick with cancer. Her daughter Cheryl is taking over for her for the weekend, and she has a lot to do with what goes on, to the point of actually directly influencing the action on stage by way of phone calls. And then there is James Bradley Scott. This is Taylor's father, and, and this is just an example of how incredibly complex what goes on in this play is, because Taylor's father was an academic, a cultural anthropologist, and wrote, apparently, a series of books about... Um, uh, race in America, basically, race in America commentaries. And again, Taylor is Kent's girlfriend who's meeting the family for the first time. And apparently Kent's family, the LeVays, people who own this house, appear in a number of James Bradley Scott's books because they're a wealthy black family that owns a house in Martha's Vineyard, which is, uh, you know, a little bit known to be sort of a whitewashed area. Now, Taylor's father, James Bradley Scott, died before the action of the play, and there's this whole complicating factor of the fact that he never really acknowledged Taylor as his daughter. In fact, even to the point of in the funeral, in the program, and in the obituary, it mentions James Bradley Scott's whole immediate family, his wife and children, and Taylor is only mentioned as 
and, you know, is survived by da 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 and a daughter from a previous marriage. Taylor grew up without a lot of money because her father, this wealthy, influential cultural anthropologist, didn't provide money for them, but with a name that could get her into a lot of places. And so she harbors a lot of that, that life coming into the play with it. So all that to say, four major parent characters and three of them are offstage characters. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they they are they're constantly felt throughout the play. You feel their presence. Everyone is always talking about Ma and what she would, how much she would hate them eating in the living room, for instance, um, or and anything like that. Why she's not there? I mean, and the why, fact yeah. that she's not actually in the play on stage is a huge part of the script. Mm-hmm. And it slowly becomes like even more and more uh, noticeable as she begins calling. Uh, again, she is one of the few characters who who calls in other than Miss Ellie and and tries to affect the play, but is continually Joe uh, continually doesn't answer her calls, doesn't take her calls. So um, so yeah, they, they, all of them are felt, and Taylor spends like a lot of time unpacking her relationship with her dad, and it actually is a pretty important element of the play because she ends up kind of um, working out some of those problems that she has left over from her dad's relationship with her on Joe by the end of the play. Much of the last scene is this big fight where everyone's mad at each other and everyone's leaving at the same time. And her plea over and over is you all have to stay. I can't, I can't lose this again. I can't lose family and a father figure again, just this quick. And it becomes a way in which she and Cheryl, unbeknownst to them for much of the play, are very aligned as characters. I mean, Taylor is here at this incredibly huge mansion vacation home as the guest, the girlfriend, the actually the fiancé of Kent. So she is here as one of the people to be taken care of, to be relaxed, to be waited on by the maid, the cook, the housekeeper, etc. But she's very uncomfortable with that because she didn't grow up with that kind of wealth. And so she's constantly negotiating back and forth with Cheryl about, can I help with anything? Can I, I'll take care of my own dishes, etc. And it really starts to get on Cheryl's nerves for whatever reason. There's a lot going on there. Um, and, and so... So as the play goes on and they sort of figure each other out a little bit more, then there's that revelation at the end that Cheryl, who thought her dad had died in Afghanistan or Iraq a long time ago, discovers that Joseph was her father, has never really been there for, has actually pretended that she wasn't his daughter for four the four years that he's known. And you see that, oh, well, Taylor and Cheryl really share in common this sort of absent father who maybe didn't really even want them. Um, that was this sort of wealthy, powerful, uh, influential black man and left them out of their lives. Yeah, yeah, out of out of the the kind of warmth of family um, and 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 the belonging 
to that. There's this <laughs> there's this great line towards the end of the play, and I'll just paraphrase it because I'm not going to be able to find it in time to actually say it. But um, <laughs> Taylor and and Cheryl spend the whole play fighting and being angry at each other. And finally, after a couple couple of moments of of care for each other, Cheryl says something along the lines of, "I keep trying to not like you." <laughs> <laughs> but you just <laughs> there's just something so like likable about you. I can't figure it out. <laughs> and it is something along the lines of what you're talking about is these two characters actually have quite a bit of affinity and and similar life experience to to work off of each other even though there's significant things that that uh, especially Taylor keeps like making mistakes about that that offend Cheryl. So uh, looking at this these four parents the play is so much about parenthood and the relationship that adult children have to their parents and the legacies and the lineage that parents deposit on to their children. What does it do for the play, do you think, Jackson, that only one of these parents the audience actually gets to meet? Yeah, no, it's, it, it certainly provides a pretty... Um, subjective view of 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 the parenting in this in this unit I, I think you're right to draw attention to it because as we've been calling him Joe the whole time but his title in the script is dad so it's clear that the script is like centering around this this parent theme and that the one that is under our microscope is Joe the dad um so so I think that that's part of the device is to kind of center in on what he has done to this family um and 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 not all that is bad stuff Certainly, there is one pretty uh, distinct uh, thing that he has done that, that that is quite bad, and he has a, a, a complex relationship with his sons. But there's other things too. the The family scenes are all very kind of jovial, and and uh, it's clear that whatever he has managed to craft of this family as the dad is a. Uh, a family that loves each other, certainly. Maybe it's not a healthy family, but it is a family that all cares for each other in some way. So I think it's part of that is what's under the microscope, is what he has done um, to craft this little family group and the consequences and the benefits of that being pushed up against each other. And there's this sense through the whole play of I think you mentioned something about it earlier, that these these three offstage parents just hang over what happens on stage. They are constantly talked about. We've mentioned that the fact that mom, Mrs. LeVay, isn't here at Martha's Vineyard with them is highly unusual. They know something's wrong. Flip and Kent, the sons, know something's wrong because mom's not there. Why isn't she there? She's really coming tomorrow? That seems weird. I tried to call her and she won't pick up. Dad, you're not answering any of her phone calls. What is going on? On with that. She hangs over the action that occurs on stage. James Bradley Scott and his daughter Taylor hangs over the play, not only because the way that he mistreated Taylor is influenced her as a character, but also because of the books that he's written about the LeVay family, or it's not really, their books aren't about them, but they appear in his books. And the fact that he was a powerful, influential black man that the LeVay family mentions, you know, uh, dad always talks about how much he would have liked to meet James Bradley Scott. And the, the, the comment that the way that James Bradley Scott commented on white society is something that Taylor and the two sons negotiate back and forth a while. 
And then, of course, Miss Ellie is literally interfering in the action of the play, trying to direct the action from offstage. So you get these three powerful, almost ghostly parental figures. And then, as you said, Joseph sort of carries the weight almost of all of them by being the only parent to actually appear in the action of the show. He sort of ends up bearing the sins of all parents on himself, and he has enough of his own. Yeah, yeah. And to the point that he'll defend, I think he defends each of those people throughout the play to their children. Um, Some of them are his children as well. but um, (laughs) Most of them, as we learn. (laughs) (laughs) All but two. Um, (laughs) But yeah, he he kind of serves as the main uh, voice for the parents, both for and against their behavior um and and ends up taking on quite quite a bit of that that burden um in to the point that he'll even defend um uh Taylor's father to her and some of his actions to her and and feels like he can step into that space a little bit so the play has tons of characters on stage and off and Frankly, all nine of the characters, if you include the six onstage characters and the three major offstage characters, have a a pretty full journey, a pretty complex plot that interweaves with all of the other characters. And, And so the play has just an incredible amount of stuff going on. But Mm -hmm. is there a character that you could, with any reliability, say this play is theirs, this Hmm. is the protagonist, this is the central character. Uh, Just to cushion that, I'll I'll say I'm part of a script club here where I live in Arkansas, and we recently talked about a totally different play, and we we discussed how the play is so evenly balanced among several of the major characters that you could, with, with good reason sort of shift the perspective of the play to make any of them kind of the central protagonist and that might be true of this play but but do you have any sort of gut instinct about i mean who are we there with and alongside Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's a great question i think there are stronger choices than others in this play i think some of the 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 strong uh, in my mind the strongest choice would be lydia or no, not Lydia. Who's Lydia? Lydia's not even... <laughs> Lydia's the playwright. <laughs> Lydia's the playwright. The strongest... It's uh... definitely true. The playwright. <laughs> <laughs> no, the strongest choice, I think, would be Taylor. Um, uh, Taylor shows up to this family and is is the person kind of thrown into the world. Even Kimber, who is white and is thus a... a physically different to the family seems to have a similar class experience. And so she's able to enter into the rhythms of the family in a really different way than Taylor is. Taylor consistently is kind of bouncing up against what this family is. And some of the journey is kind of watching her um, and, and the struggle she has involving herself with the family and becoming attached to the family only to find, you know, within a day of knowing them that there's so much tragedy um, lurking beneath the, 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 the surface of this family that she now has to deal with as well. So in some ways we're invited. She, she is our, our uh, inroad into this family. Like you almost imagine that we wouldn't get this story if it weren't for, Taylor and and our ability to follow her into this this uh, group of people. 
Well, yeah, and and I think that probably to deal with the last sentence that you just said, you wouldn't get this story without Taylor. The question really becomes, what is this story? Because <laughs> hmm, there's so yeah. many stories, right? And one of them would not happen, maybe even the story, I don't know, wouldn't happen without Cheryl. Uh, you could imagine that much of the play would occur if Taylor weren't on stage just simply because Taylor's presence doesn't really influence the fact that Cheryl is being pinioned into this position of discovering this truth. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that Cheryl is another reasonable guess at who this play is about. She's an outsider in the sense that she is not there on vacation. She's the one working, working for this group of vacationers. Um, She's an outsider in terms of her class. She's a lower working class individual and discovers another lower working class individual in Taylor that, that she could align with, but instead butts heads against. The boiling over point that happens towards the end of the play, I guess you you could pick from a couple of points, but one of them at least is really about Cheryl discovering that in fact she's related to all these people, that that Joseph is her dad and and all of that. It it might seem sort of an... um, not a really intuitive choice because she's the maid, but I, I think she has pretty pretty darn close to equal stage time of anybody, and she's not just like this employee. Her and her mother uh, have been with this family forever. She's grown up with the LeVay children, and in fact, the fact that she has to work this weekend instead of just hanging out with all of them just as another person there to enjoy herself is only really because her mother is sick. So she's a very high-context character. One of the stronger pieces of the play, I think, is late in the show where Cheryl sort of tells Taylor off for the fact that, you know, Cheryl actually has a place in his family and has forever, and Taylor's really the outsider. There's a great showdown there. Um, so, So I think that Cheryl might be another reasonable lens with which to view the audience inroad into the play. Now, she does have that high context relationship and Taylor is sort of the new person on stage. So Taylor is given a lot more of the exposition than Cheryl is. And so, you know, if the audience is looking for who we are on stage, Taylor is maybe a more honest choice. Yeah, but I like what you said about uh, about Cheryl. I think that you're 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 right to kind of note the the beats of the play that she is integral integrally a part of, um, and and especially that the climax of the play only happens because Cher- Cheryl figures out and and can't hold in kind of keep the secret um, underneath uh, and and just continue on with this family the way. The way it's been, and part of that is is because of how close she is to the family. It's clear that from the start of the play that she has this enormous crush on Flip. It's called for in the stage directions <laughs> to to have it be a part of it, and and there's there's some uh, that I think that's part of why it becomes too much for her to hold. Certainly. Part of it is that she's her her father is just like blithely going on and accepting her as a maid and not saying anything. 
but also part yeah, of it is the when the when it's revealed that he's her father again one of the stronger lines in the play i think is when cheryl basically says you knew that i was your daughter and you showed up this weekend and still asked me to make a sandwich for you right still yeah. ordered me to do that and that that's a really powerful very specific jab that really lands mhm yeah and then the just con- the the d- dominoes that continue to fall um, as a result of that. Like she still has these feelings for Flip, but I think it's Kimber's line that says, "Sorry, he's off the table for you now." Um, yeah, how so. weird is that? <laughs> and that they go around that sort of awkward situation, which is that not knowing that Flip is her half brother, Cheryl's grown up with this huge crush on him, and Flip knows that about her. And to the point where when the revelation is given that their half-brother and sister flip basically in his sort of defensive, sarcastic way of dealing with it says, what do you want me to say? Like, good thing I didn't seduce you last winter. Right. <laughs> it's like, whoa, yeah, boy, howdy. Yeah. Yeah, no, all of it is kind of boiling over and coming to a head in those moments. And I think I think her her ties to the family is is part of the reason why why everything crashes in such a a glorious way. Um, It wouldn't be the same if she was, you know, just just kind of this family that they knew about. But she played games with them. Uh, It's odd this year that she doesn't over and over. They try to keep getting Cheryl to play the games. They're playing board games in the living room on many of the scenes and they keep trying to invite her. Just the worst board games, too. Yeah, really Just bad board games. Bad choices. <laughs> Nothing against Scrabble, but like, <laughs> Kimber is right to say that. Yeah. Okay, the board yeah. game boom hadn't happened yet. <laughs> Kimber is right to say that it's a boring game. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, over and over, she has to like keep reminding them, no, 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 I'm working this this week, so this this not the same this year. And so, so we got Taylor and Cheryl. I think those are probably the stronger two choices for, you know, who this play centers around. Um, interesting that they're both these sort of outsider characters. That's maybe mm-hmm. obvious, but interesting nonetheless. And then there's Kent. Yeah, Kent has, is hard. He, he has kind of his own story going on, doesn't he? Yeah, he could almost have a separate play about his like trying to um, break free of his of his father's uh, sh- shadow or or uh, overbearingness. Um, he he can he he's written this book, um, something that I didn't talk about in the context at all. The two things that could be added on as significant subplots are Taylor coming in and her 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 father background, which we talked about, and Kent coming into the family trying to prove that he can be a writer. Um, which is something that Joe has no respect for. Um, uh, Joe really wants him to just get a normal job, he says, or a regular job, and he's willing to help him in that, but he's not willing to help him become a writer. Um, yeah, Joseph has paid for Kent to get a number of degrees, none of them in writing. Right. Business, law, sociology, you know, he's sort of degree heavy, but doesn't want to just go ahead and buckle down and get a high-paying job in any of those careers. Instead, and Joseph says with some scorn, now you've decided you want to be a writer. Right, yeah, yeah. So it's, so he's he's brought his, like, full manuscript that he's he's— 
kind of editing, but it's close to a final manuscript that is like getting published. And through the play, there's a number of beats. Like he he gets the artwork, I think, for it at, at one point. And, and over and over, it's clear that a number of the characters have read the book. Kimber, uh, Flip's girlfriend, uh, says that she read the book and really liked it. And there's a whole chunk of it that's her kind of commenting on how, how much she liked it and the themes he was playing with. And over and over, uh, Kent is... Uh, coming up against the wall of his dad um, and and not really getting accepted for that. He, he over and over, um, with, with one moment in specific, like he's invited to go out with, um, with Joe and Flip on this like fishing thing. And he's- Like he, a guy's day. I don't, I don't yeah. think they're very serious fishermen. It's more about just like drinking and hanging out. And in fact, getting away from the women, which they say out loud. Right. In, and, front, yeah, in front of, of the, the gals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so he, over and over, Kent kind of like says that he's not not on board with a lot of what his dad and Flip do. Um, and so some of the some of the energy of his character is in saying, "No, I'm separate. I'm apart, and I and it's okay because of that. I need you to accept me because of that, um, or or rather, in spite of that, perhaps for in in the case of his father, um, and the the. So he has a significant journey of he, he enters the play uh, telling Taylor that may, I brought my manuscript, but maybe I won't share it with with uh, everyone. I'm not really comfortable getting harangued by my dad about my writing. Um, and, and he goes on a long journey to where a, another climactic moment is him last couple pages of the play coming down, handing his manuscript to his dad and saying, Need you to I, I I need to give this to you. You don't really need to read it. I'd like you to read it. I'd like to hear from you. Maybe I don't want to hear from you. I just need to give this to you. And and we're done now. <laughs> and it, so. it it is clear that the the novel that Kent has written is in some way about Kent's life and especially his life with his father. We get yeah. to hear just a small chunk of the book. And the chunk that we hear, it's just a paragraph or two, is the beginning of a of a some sort of dramatic climactic confrontation between the central character who's a young black man and his father who's an older black man. So mm-hmm. it, it's and Kent obviously with a lot of problems with his father, it, it seems very obvious that it's about their relationship in some way. So Kent giving his dad his novel not only is appreciate me as a writer but also hear what i have to say about our relationship too yeah mhm yeah i uh, kind of the be seen and heard from your father about how how your experience has been of the relationship so jason there's just so much else going on in this yeah. play there's just there's just piles of stuff from each character. <laughs> and frankly, you could say, well, this family's really dysfunctional, obviously. And that's true. But yeah. I also think that Lydia Diamond is just sort of willing to not be so clean about making a family only have like one issue. I mean, families have lots of stuff going on and she's really clear about that. All that to say, why include this thing about Kent being a writer? It's just so, of all the little plot lines that go on, to me it seems the one that's like the most unrelated to the rest of the play. It it certainly is important to Kent as a character, and it interweaves with the other plot in terms of 
you know, it sparks some things and some things spark that problem to come back to the forefront. But the two things could, you know, the, the rest of the play and the issue of the writing, as you said when you started, could be separate plays. So why include that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly I, I think it rings of honesty. Um, I think the younger child is often um, kind of subject to uh, trying to figure out a way to be different than the older child and the parent, um, and and uh, it's a it's a very common theme of trying to figure that out and trying to stand on your own two feet away from that. And I think the play leans into that pretty hard again in like. In, in 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 a way that's like just so much rich information because we've we've there's there's so much going on but flip and Joe are really similar um their their character descriptions are tied to each other essentially um with with uh Joe's description saying uh, flip's description is uh, the golden boy who with some compromises has fallen in line with his father's expectations he is an incorrigible ladies man uh Joe's description is he's a well-intentioned man who rules his family with a firm, loving hand. He, like Flip, has always had a way with women. So there is there is a synergy between Flip and Joe that Kent, we get the sense, has been working against his whole life. Well, right, um, and of course, there's a more obvious synergy too, which is just that they're both doctors. Now, yeah. Flip is like in plastic surgery, and uh, Joseph is like a famed, very wealthy neurosurgeon. So mm-hmm. there's a difference in degree there. To, uh, I don't want to offend anybody in the medical field, but that does seem to be the commentary of the play. Right. Uh, but they have that in line, too. Mm-hmm. So I think the addition of Kent as the, the, the writer and this whole evolution of his storyline um, – is 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 one of an honest one. Uh, it identifies a family and and makes it a very true family. Um, I also think it informs uh, Taylor's story though as well. Uh, again, tying back to uh, Taylor as as my idea of what possibly would be the protagonist of this play. Um, part of the story is uh, Kent's ability to stand up for her to her fam- to his family. And so some of the journey that he's on and some of the journey that Taylor needs him to be on is someone who's not necessarily going to just uh, bow down to his father's will and and uh, be able to stand on his own feet. And Taylor spends a lot of energy trying to keep him on his two feet and push him towards p- giving the book to his dad and saying that his writing is good. So, so that's that's. I think that's where some of it, some of the importance of the plot line ties into the overall uh, arc of the play and his connection to Taylor. I think too, it, it is representative of one of these major questions of the play about parenthood, and and it's given a lot of weight. Kent's writing plot. Uh, I think just partially because it's such an empathetic plot line. <laughs> the, yeah. the artist who just wants to write his book, and he's even good, but his right. doctor father wants him to. You know, it's it's a little <laughs> bit cheesy, a little bit hokey, and it, it, it's so empathetic despite all that. And so it's given a lot of weight. But I, Flip actually has a similar thing going on. It's not about his career and wanting to be a writer, but it's about the way he interacts with women. Like his father, as Jackson said, Flip has a way with women, but Flip is accused by Joseph of sort of never having grown up. 
Joseph was, you know, a ladies' man, and then he married his wife, and he settled down and had a family and raised two kids. We learned later that that wasn't so fair. That's Super just, lying. Maybe not what he really did, <laughs> but that's the accusation. Whereas Flip is not interested in a serious relationship at all. In fact, there's that moment later in the play where Kimber, who has sort of agreed to a casual um, relationship, apparently so casual that she doesn't even really have a right to be jealous of the way Flip interacts with other women. I don't really know what's going on there, but it's supposedly this agreed upon casual thing. And when Kimber says, you know, I've sort of realized that I want either this or something else to become more serious than that, to, to become a more standard relationship that might become a partnership and a life, Flip says, you know that I don't want that at all. Right, and, and so all that to say that Flip is in a similar boat as Kent in terms of not living up to this sort of pictured uh, adult man that their father wants each of them to become. And Kent's uh, Kent's plot gets a little more weight because it's a more empathetic version of of Flip's issue with his dad, who sure. wants to know about like the guy that refuses to settle down and marry the woman who's clearly in love with him. I mean, that's just <laughs> not a very empathetic story for Flip. Right. Kent's is much more so. But but both of them have that, and in some ways, uh, and this is I would suspect a very intentional choice from Lydia Diamond, Cheryl is the perfect child that Joseph wants. She's intelligent, (laughs) incredibly mature, has a very clear vision for her life, has the chutzpah to get it. Uh, She is not doing things to sabotage herself. I mean, she's she's such such a great human being. And Joseph doesn't even really want her as a daughter. Right, uh, yeah. Lied for years about whether or not she really was his daughter. And so is it the fact that Kent and Flip have grown up wealthy that has made them the way they are as opposed to Cheryl? I don't know what kind of commentary Diamond's making about that. But it does sort of become this sad world that Joseph can't respect and... um, you know, love is not the right word because he does love them, but maybe I'll just go with respect. Respect his sons for the way that they are and doesn't respect Cheryl for the fact that she is his daughter, even though in so many ways she is the child that he really wants, although she's not a man. I think that is... the kind of underlying tragedy of of Joe is that he's made this like loving family, but that he somehow has like failed to respect any of them, um, and in any of their uh, across the board, he, he's fail, failing. Yeah, he's failing to respect Flip and and guide him towards adulthood, whatever that means for Flip. Um, he's he's failing to respect. Uh, uh, Kent, there we go. He's failing to respect Kent's dreams, and he fails to respect Cheryl by not telling her um, her biology. Her (laughs) biology. Once he finds out, so so yeah, that's kind of if if there were. I don't think there's a super strong argument for for Joe as the protagonist, but if there was one, that would be his tragedy, his underlying uh, arc that he goes on is that he discovers that some of his strength, his ability to kind of be this this uh, unmovable, unstoppable force 
person in the family um, gets gets uh, undercut by his inability to uh, connect with any of his kids on a on a respect level. So uh, there's a lot going on. We've said it over and over yeah. and over again. This is one of, frankly, one of the more complex family dramedies I've ever read, comparable with August Osage County in terms yeah. of how much is going on. August in, Osage, in, yeah. Yeah, so uh, despite all of that, it's very, very, very funny. It is a yeah. comedy in so many ways, not in the sense of like you're uproarious laughing at the hijinks, but in <laughs> the sort of tone of the play. Lydia Diamond says she wanted to write kind of a frothy, funny play. It's very much that. There are some really great comic bits that help to offset some of the deep drama. I'm thinking of the moments where uh, all before Kimber shows up, Kimber is the last person to appear in the play. She appears the next morning after the father has shown up. And all throughout, Flip, knowing that she's white, has tried to sort of lay the groundwork by claiming she's Italian. So when she shows up the next morning, both Kent and Ken's father, Joseph, separately greet her in Italian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And then, and then Kimber ends up saying, I can't believe you told them I'm Italian. Yeah, not <laughs> I'm at not all. Italian. And Flip's like, well, your, your mom has a pasta maker, doesn't she? <laughs> <laughs> yep. And there's, there's, there's uh, O'Neill levels of inebriation um, throughout the night that lead to, to hijinks and, and fights that uh, vary between between uh, comedic and and uh, really tense, um, so so and yeah, throughout the throughout the play, there is in in general this kind of especially like Flip and Kent have a lot of energy around this kind of back and forth flippancy that uh, that drives a lot of the just the straight up enjoyment of this play as you are sussing out these deep secrets from people. And Taylor, as she is such a central character to what goes on in the script, she's such a sort of delightfully odd human, very funny yeah. human being, very interesting, has a very unique perspective on the world, really struggles to have kind of normal rich person conversations, I'll say. <laughs> um, and she, that makes her such a quirky character to follow all the while. And she has the, she has the title of the play. She is this like, uh, naturalist who is observing the flies around the the uh, the, the the estate and kind of uh, getting them to stick to honey stick fly um, and uh, she uh, yeah so she's she's all kind of consistently having these conversations with folks about flies uh, Cheryl kills one of her flies at one point that is stuck to honey on the countertop so yeah she's she's a a, a delightfully uh, odd character at times that that crashes into this family. <laughs> well, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, there's so much especially, more. Especially because we've, we've left out whole pieces of it. Yeah. Where, so much of the play is about race and class and how those two things intersect. We approach some of it. And I also think there's a whole piece of this play that's about gender. The way that the mm -hmm. men talk about the women, the way that the women have power and use it in certain specific situations is really fascinating and probably rings differently now 14 years after it was written, 10 years after it appeared on Broadway than it did back then. And and all of that is really interesting. We only have an hour, so we talked about what we talked about, but right. <laughs> we would love to talk about more. 
Yeah, we'd love to keep getting to talk about this more with you out there in internet land. Um, if you have read this play, if you've watched this play, if you've been in this play, this is an imminently producible play. Um, so so if you've been in this play or been a part of this play in any way, we'd love to keep talking about it with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites, and we'd love to keep talking about the 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 multitude of other lines of story that are in Stickfly with you. Absolutely. If you'd like to recommend this podcast to folks, that'd be a huge help to us. You can send them to Spotify. That's a really easy place. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Um, and then we are hosted on a website called Podbean. You can find us there as well. The easiest way to find the new episodes is just to be connected with us on Facebook at No Script Podcast. And there, every Monday, we post the link to a new episode as it comes out. So you're welcome to catch us there on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those places. We also release what new episode is coming out on Monday on the Wednesday before. So folks that like to read ahead have a chance to do that, too. We have an announcement coming up soon, but are we announcing it this week? Next week, (laughs) tune in for a special announcement, the same announcement we make every season about this time. So if you're a longtime No Script listener, you may know what is coming in the world of No Script. But all we'll say for now is special announcement next week. See you then. So until then, when you hear that announcement and we'll be talking about another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us on No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.